Hello, and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of Destroyer Escorts. Each month, a member of Slater's education crew will highlight a specific Destroyer Escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. Today, we're going to DE Classify USS Samuel B. Roberts. My name is John Epp, and I'm a tour guide aboard USS Slater in Albany, New York. As part of our ongoing series to explore the history of destroyer escorts, today we look at the destroyer escort that fought like a battleship, USS Samuel B. Roberts, DE-413. Sammy B., as the ship would affectionately come to be known, earned her fame during the Battle of Samar which was collectively a part of the largest naval battle of World War II, the Battle of Leyte Gulf. To fully appreciate the history and sacrifice of the brave sailors aboard Sammy B, we should first trace the construction and commissioning of this legendary warship. DE-413 was laid down on the 6th of December, 1943, at Houston, Texas, by the Brown Shipbuilding Company. This shipbuilding powerhouse was built as an emergency shipyard to satisfy the Navy's demand for diverse ships capable of all manner of duties. Employing over 25,000 skilled workers, Brown Shipbuilding would complete nearly 350 vessels, 61 of which were the Navy's latest invention against submarines, the destroyer escort. The history of destroyer escorts has already been covered in our first episode of DE Classified, so be sure to check that out. After only six weeks, Samuel B. Roberts slid down the slipway on the 6th of January, 1944, and was sponsored by Anna Roberts, mother of coxswain Samuel B. Roberts Jr., for whom the ship is named after. Born on the 12th of May, 1921, in San Francisco, California, Roberts enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve on the 13th of April, 1939. Following training, he was recalled to active duty on board the battleship California BB-44 on the 12th of July, 1940, as a seaman second class. On the 2nd of December, 1940, Seaman Roberts was again recalled and assigned to the transport Haywood, AP-12. After disembarking some of the first U.S. Marines on Icelandic soil, Haywood would transport other passengers to Bermuda, Puerto Rico, and Trinidad, during which time Roberts would advance in rates to seaman first class on the 1st of September, 1940. War soon came for the United States and seaman Roberts when the Empire of Japan launched a surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet moored at Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December, 1941. Following training exercises, 
Haywood transited the Panama Canal in mid-April of 1942, arriving in Papagopago, Samoa, on the 10th of May. From here, Roberts was transferred to another transport, the Hunter Leggett AP-27, which was moored at Wellington, New Zealand, undergoing refitting and training for the eventual invasion of Guadalcanal. It would be at this battle, codenamed Operation Watchtower, that Roberts would make his country proud, resulting in a ship to be named after him. On the second day of the Guadalcanal campaign, Paxman Roberts disembarked Hunter Leggett alongside Lieutenant Commander Dwight H. Dexter of the United States Coast Guard and 24 other Marines to establish a naval headquarters. Unfortunately for Roberts and the Marines on the island, that night and into the early hours of 9 August, the Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the American fleet still unloading troops and supplies. From sunrise, the American ships were nowhere to be seen as they had been routed. One can only imagine the shock and awe that Roberts and his fellow troops must have felt as they gazed out to sea and saw only the smoldering wrecks of their ships. For the time being, Roberts lived amongst the Marines as they struggled to smoke out the Japanese defenders. On the 23rd of September, Lieutenant Colonel Louis B. Chesty Pullers, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, moved further inland to investigate the area west of the Manitakwao River. Casualties quickly mounted when they ran into stiff Japanese resistance that was well camouflaged and familiar with the jungle terrain. The 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, were called in for support, allowing for casualties, including Polar, to be withdrawn. G Company attempted to cross the river, but were forced back by heavy mortar and small arms fire. A new strategy was devised, one that Robert himself would become a hero for. The morning of 27 September, the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, began their third assault across the river, this time further upstream. Polar's 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, would attempt to outflank the Japanese defenders by utilizing the Higgins boats, which had brought them ashore weeks prior. Coxwain Roberts volunteered to crew one of these boats as they ferried the Marines west of Point Cruz at 1300, with the support of the destroyer Monson, DD-436. Quickly, however, the Marines were forced to create a defensive perimeter as the Japanese soldiers fought with a strong ferocity. An evacuation was ordered for the pinned-down Marines, who at this time found themselves cut off to the sea by a Japanese that had been able to counterflank Monson's 5-inch guns opened a path for the retreating Marines to board the Higgins boats to safety. At the same time, heavy enemy artillery and small arms fire continued to hamper rescue operations. Roberts' boat shifted their focus to draw the enemy fire away from the Marines, and in doing so, Roberts was mortally wounded. For his bravery, Roberts was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross, His citation reads, 
The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Navy Cross posthumously to Coxswain Samuel Booker Roberts Jr., United States Naval Reserve, for extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty while serving as a volunteer member of the crew of a Higgins boat used in the evacuation of a group of Marines from a beachhead on Guadalcanal Island on the 27th of September, 1942. Coxwain Roberts, although he knew that his boat was to be maneuvered into an exposed position for the purpose of drawing fire away from the other boats being used to rescue the trapped Marines, courageously volunteered as a member of the crew. A lightly armed boat was made a target for the enemy fire during the entire evacuation, and Coxwain Roberts was mortally wounded just as the operation was completed. His gallant action, taken without regard for his own safety, contributed directly to the highly successful rescue, and was in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Two months after her launch, USS Samuel B. Roberts was commissioned. On the 28th of April, Captain DeWitt C. Redgrave, Superintendent of Shipbuilding, officially commissioned the Tin Can as her crew stood at attention on the Fantail. Lieutenant Commander Robert W. Copeland, United States Naval Reserve, assumed command and issued his orders and set the first watch. For three days, the ship moored at the Southern Pacific Pier in the Houston Ship Channel in preparation for her sea trials. On the 3rd of May, the ship's steam engines were started, and the first of three ships to be named after the San Francisco native began her journey to sea. Unfortunately, that journey did not start off on the right foot. Sammy B made a wrong turn and plowed into an embankment. While no damage was caused to ship, embarrassment certainly spread amongst her crew. After filling her magazines with thousands of rounds of ammunition, including anti-aircraft rounds, depth charges, and torpedoes, at the San Jacinto Ordnance Depot, the destroyer escort headed for the Gulf of Mexico for 10 days of sea trials before sailing for Bermuda in a more intense shakedown, which she completed on the 19th of June. Her first escort came shortly after when she was assigned an escort of the freighter Berkshire to Norfolk, Virginia. She then traveled to Boston for post-shakedown availability and further sea trials. It was during her voyage south from Boston that Sammy B scored her first kill of the war, a whale. Shortly after leaving Boston, an unidentified object was heard on sonar. Two large and violent crashes were heard and felt, throwing men against bulkheads. Below decks, some of the sailors feared their ship, which probably still had a fresh paint scent, had been torpedoed. Others worried they had run aground. Quickly, evidence of the whale was seen as the ocean turned red and chunks floated past the warship. Copeland had his executive officer, Lieutenant Roberts, note their location and the water depth of 75 fathoms, or 450 feet, because a naval investigation would certainly be conducted, and Copeland wanted it to be clear to the investigators that he had not run his ship aground, 
Lieutenant Irwin, the division's doctor, was also tasked with preserving some of the whale as proof. The damage? The damaged propeller and a shaft along with the destruction of their sonar dome. The death of the whale and subsequent trip to Drydock was a blessing in disguise. For one night, while in Norfolk, Copeland and Lieutenant Garnett were returning to the ship from Liberty. A tiny dog was discovered along the pier that was in obvious need of a meal. He was taken aboard and given the proper name of Sammy. In Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors, more is written of Sammy and his adventures at sea, which can be found on pages 36 and 37. The sleep-ruffled physician arrived, as ordered, standing on the cold floor of the wardroom in slippers, skivvy shirt, and cotton khaki trousers. As the doctor rubbed his eyes, Copeland said, We have a new recruit on board, and I want you to give him a physical and make out a health record for him, so that we can properly take him up in the ship's company. Irwin stared at him. Had he really been called at 3 a.m. to perform a routine physical exam on a new crew member? Garnett brought Irwin some coffee. Come on, Doc, sit down, he said. The physician looked around for his patient. Copeland gestured beneath the large table. Irwin looked down at his feet, saw the puppy, and erupted in anger. He told the captain what he thought of his and the first lieutenant's little joke. On the verge of stomping off to his bunk, he was stopped in his tracks when Copeland said, Oh, this dog is going to be the ship's mascot, and everything has to be just so. Grudgingly, the doctor pulled out his stethoscope and got to work. His skipper was impressed. He really gave the puppy a thorough going over. He took the stethoscope and checked the dog's heart and lungs. And he got the blood pressure thing out and wrapped him up. I don't think he had any more idea how to take a dog's blood pressure than I did. He made out a complete medical report on the puppy. He put on a good show for just the two of us, Garnett and me. Then he sent for the chief yeoman. I think he was as put out as Dr. Irwin had been at being broken out of his bunk. However, he entered into the spirit of it too and made up a service record for the puppy. We fourth named the mascot Sammy. Given the rating Seaman Second Class, Sammy received a rapid promotion to Petty Officer. During a tour of the boiler room initiated by an obliging fireman who found him peering down a hatch toward the Black Gang's Wonderland, the noise of the boilers threw the animal into a fit. As he relieved himself onto the hot steel deck, he earned his rating of water tender first class. A sailor, adept at tailoring, Sam Blue, took a Kapok life jacket and, with a few cuts and stitches, fashioned a miniature life jacket for the dog. Sammy made a splash. Speculation flew in the gizmo, the ship newsletter, that he had a canine paramour in Tokyo and saw the DE-413 as his quickest way across the Pacific. The teenagers and young men aboard the Samuel B. Roberts acquired a certain degree of affection for the mammals that touched their lives, both the one they had accidentally killed and the one they now saved. 
with their official mascot now on board, the boys joined by their dog. The ship's journey to Pacific was delayed no further. And to the Pacific she went. In late July, she began her long voyage to the Pacific. Along the way, she transited the Panama Canal and arrived at Pearl Harbor on the 10th of August. Throughout the voyage, she intercepted multiple unknown ships that eventually came back as Allied merchant ships. After arriving in the Marshall Islands, the ship's crew split in two and played a friendly game of softball. Goldstein's goons easily beat out Harrington's All-Stars 11-4. I guess they weren't true All-Stars. Another convoy was added to her resume when she joined the Minesweeper's Impeccable AM-320 and Gladiator AM-319 to escort convoy EP-9 to Pearl Harbor. Multiple sonar and radar contacts were made by Sammy B, but none ever resulted in any enemy vessels. Following a stint in buoy upkeep, she joined another convoy steaming for the Marshall Islands. After arriving, she was given orders to travel to Manus Island to prepare for the invasion of the Philippines. During the voyage, her crew participated in the time-honored tradition of crossing the equator, allowing for those that had never crossed, polywogs as they were called, into shellbacks, those that had crossed. Within our collection, we have numerous certificates, photographs, and artifacts from these ceremonies, so be sure to ask about our collections tour next time you visit. On the 12th of October, Sammy B joined forces with the very ships that would be alongside when she wrote herself into the history books only days later. Fellow destroying escorts John C. Butler, DE339, Dennis, DE405, and Raymond, DE341, joined Sammy B to screen the escort carriers Kitkana Bay, CVE71, and Gambier Bay, CVE73, as they provided aerial support for ships off Leyte on the 19th of October. It was here that the six ships joined the now famous Taffy 3. Taffy 3 was one of three escort carrier units within Rear Admiral Thomas Sprague's Task Group 77.4. Each Taffy unit had their own commander and consisted of multiple escort carriers along with their respective escorts. Taffy 1 took up station of Northern Mindanao, Taffy 2 guarded the entrance to Leyte Gulf, and Taffy 3 patrolled just north of the island of Samar. Taffy 3 was led by Rear Admiral Clifton Sprague, though there is no relation to Thomas Sprague. With the invasion of the Philippines fully underway, the three carrier units launched attacks on the Japanese-held airfields on the islands, supported ground operations, and patrolled the seas over eastern Leyte Gulf. On the 24th of October, Operation Shogo-1 commenced. Devised as a response to the American invasion of the Philippines, Japanese officials worried that an American victory there would cut off vital fuel resources in the East Indies. A three-pronged naval operation was concocted. The combined fleet, which consisted of three Japanese forces, 
was under the command of Admiral Soimu Toyota. He had been appointed commander of the Combined Fleet on the 3rd of May 1944, following the death of Admiral Koga, whose plane crashed during a typhoon in late March of 1944. Admiral Toyota did not believe war with the United States was needed to achieve their goals in expanding their empire, but also believed that as a soldier, his job was to obey orders and avoid politics. The three-pronged attack of Operation Shogo-1 was divided into a northern force led by Vice Admiral Uzawa. This force consisted of attack carriers meant to draw the attention of Admiral Halsey and lure the large American battleships and carriers of the Third Fleet away from the Philippines. With the bulk of the American Navy absent, the other two prongs of the Japanese plan would sail in under the cover of darkness and annihilate the American landing forces. The center force, under the command of Vice Admiral Kurita, was to sail through the San Bernardino Strait. Within this force, sailed some of the largest and most fierce ships the world had ever seen, including the Yamato. At the same time, the southern force was to sail through the Surguao Strait to join forces with Kurita's center force and create an unimaginably powerful fleet. Unfortunately for everyone involved, there were just too many moving pieces and unknown variables in play, which would result in extreme losses on both sides. So, on the 24th of October, Admiral Ozawa began his parts of the operation. Sailing from the north towards Cape Ngano near Luzon, Ozawa intentionally gave away his position to Halsey's Third Fleet. While he was in possession of some rather formidable carriers, Ozawa lacked enough skilled pilots to create much havoc. The once mighty Japanese carrier force had lost a significant percentage of their aircraft at the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot earlier that summer. But despite not having air superiority, Japanese naval leaders were confident their superior battleships would secure victory. Halsey took the bait and sailed his 30 fleets to finish off the Japanese carriers once and for all. The absence of his ships left Taffy 3 to guard the American invasion fleet. Taffy 1 focused on launching air attacks against the Southern Force, which had been detected before they were able to transit Surga Strait. Taffy 2 positioned themselves in the central spot off Samar, but at a distance that made it difficult to assist Taffy 3. Admiral Kurita's center force was detected prior to Uzawa revealing his position. Before his fleet of nearly two dozen ships had even entered San Bernardino Strait, two American submarines pounced on him, sinking four ships, including his flagship, Otago, forcing Kurita to swim to a nearby destroyer. He would go on to shift his flagship to the Yamato, from which he would watch on the 24th of October, his sister ship, Musashi, absorb 19 torpedoes and 17 bombs before slipping beneath the waves with over 1,000 sailors. 
Unfortunately for Taffy 3, Halsey had taken every ship in his disposal north to attack Ozawa's carriers, erroneously believing that Kurta's San Bernardino fleet had been damaged far greater than in actuality. Halsey's pilots had made the mistake of exaggerating their success, leaving the Admiral to conclude that if Kirita continued through the straits, the three small Taffy units would have no trouble finishing them off. These assumptions would prove disastrous for the men of Taffy 3. Just after midnight on the 25th of October, Kirita's damaged but still strong line of 23 warships entered the Philippine Sea. Expecting to encounter American battleships, Kirita was surprised to see nothing but darkness and feel a stiff breeze on his face. For the next few hours, his warships sailed southeast parallel to the Samar coastline. Just before 0700, a lone American TBM Avenger piloted by Bill Brooks from the escort carrier St. Lowe, was spotted. Inside the Avenger, Ensign Brooks spotted what he believed to be Halsey's third fleet. Brooks, uh, along with his fellow members of Taffy 3, believed Kirita's force had turned in retreat. But his assumptions were quickly proved false when he recognized the, t- the tall pagoda mass of the Japanese ships. He didn't have much time to process his thoughts when he was greeted by a sky filled with black puffs of anti-aircraft fire. The time was 0643, and Brooks immediately fired off a radio message to the St. Lowe. Enemy surface force of four battleships, four heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and 10 to 12 destroyers sighted 20 miles northwest of your task group and closing in on you at 30 knots. Ziggy Sprague of Taffy 3 became incensed. He too believed the ships to be elements of Halsey's third fleet and that this lone ensign had broke radio silence to announce their presence and alert any possible Japanese ships the location of American carriers. He ordered Brooks to confirm his reports by dropping down to below 2,000 feet and snapping some photographs. He confirmed his initial report in a second radio transmission, to which Sprague realized his small flotilla of escort carriers, destroyers, and destroyer escorts were no match. Sprague had only two options at his disposal. Stay and fight against a much superior enemy force, and meet certain death, or attempt to retreat and fight another day. The second option sounds like the better of the two. However, the small escort carriers were slower than the capital ships of Kirita's center force. Eventually, they would catch up. If he chose to stay and fight, his small contingent of destroyers would have to sail head-on into the Yamato and other ships to launch their spread of torpedoes, an action that is surely suicidal. At 0655, Samuel B. Roberts went to general quarters. Within minutes, her lookouts reported large columns of water between her and the Johnston. These columns of water were illuminated by different colored dyes, 
to allow for the Japanese ships to track their fire. Many of these splashes were being fired by the cruisers and battleships of the center force. Roberts and her fellow destroyers quickly laid down a smokescreen to shield their retreats and protect the carriers. Fortunately, a rain squall was in their path, and Taffy 3 received a small reprieve from the high-caliber guns of Kirita's ships, which lacked the sophisticated radar to track the Americans in a storm. At the same time, Commander Copeland addressed his worried men over the 1MC. He admitted to them that their ship, their home, would be entering a fight against overwhelming odds from which survival could not be expected, during which time we would do what damage we could. For the next few minutes, Copeland's crew of teenagers readied themselves for the fight ahead. At 0716, Sprague ordered the screen commander, Commander William Thomas, aboard Hull, to stand by to form two torpedo groups, big boys in one group and little fellas in another group. When the order was relayed to Copeland, all he heard was, little fellows, make a torpedo attack. This command confused Copeland, who realized that if the destroyer escorts, the little fellows, attacked with the destroyers, the big boys, then the carriers would be left without protection. But if he waited to attack with his fellow destroyer escorts, the carriers may be gone by then. As Copeland fought with himself on what to do, the Heerman stormed past the Roberts, attempting to join her fellow destroyers on their torpedo attack. To avoid a collision, both ships had to lower their speed and the Fletcher steered clear. This reduction in speed made it difficult for Heerman to join Johnston and Hull. Copeland decided then and there to attack without any direct orders. He reasoned that despite being the junior destroyer escort commander, he was in a better position to attack than his fellow DEs, and the Japanese ships were in a prime location for her torpedoes. After conferring with his executive officer, Bob Roberts, Copeland called his chief engineering officer, Lieutenant Bill Lucky Trowbridge. Lucky, this is a captain. Lucky, we are going on a torpedo attack, and I have rung up full speed. We are going in at 20 knots. As soon as we fire our fish, I will ring up flank speed, and I want you to hook on everything you've got. Don't worry about your reduction gears, or your boilers, or anything because there's all hell being thrown at us up here, and we're just fortunate we haven't been hit yet. Sammy's boilers were designed to carry 440 pounds of steam pressure. Lucky was able to push it to 660 pounds of steam. The crew of Samuel B. Roberts was now steaming behind Heerman and straight into the heart of the Japanese Navy. As the ships of Taffy 3 made their last-ditch effort to launch their torpedoes, the first of the American destroyers fell. Johnston, after firing her 10 torpedoes, was struck by a series of 14-inch shells, probably from battleship Congo. Six-inch shells quickly followed, 
possibly from the Yamato. Shortly after, Johnson slipped below the waves at 10.10, only minutes after the abandoned ship order was issued. Captain Evans was last seen moving forward from the fantail in search of any of his crew that hadn't made it off yet. James Hornfisher gives Evans an eloquent send-off in Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors. The chief of Annapolis, the Cherokee warrior, unhorsed by enemy gunfire, was lost to the whirlwind, taken to a private oblivion that, to this day, burnishes his mystique and deepens the legend of his late great destroyer and its magnificent crew. On the Samuby Roberts, the heavy cruiser Chakai came into her sights. At a range of 4,000 yards, a salvo of three torpedoes was fired. Sources seem to differ on whether any of them found their mark. Copeland believes he saw a column of water around the time they would have struck. Other sources believe the torpedoes missed and the explosions he saw may have come from a 500-pound bomb dropped by TBM Avenger. Whether or not the Samuby Roberts or an aircraft, Chukai would not live to see another day and now sits three miles underwater. Copeland next turned his attention to the cruiser Chickama, 12 times the size of the DE. At a range so close you could see the wrinkles in uniforms, the five-inch guns of Roberts opened fire. While not powerful enough to puncture the hull, the five-inch shells proved just strong enough to riddle the superstructure and riddle the Japanese officers and crew with shrapnel and cause numerous fires. Over 600 rounds were fired before the tin can became a casualty of war. 14-inch shells were falling closer and closer as Congo began to track the little fellow. The shells fell in a procession as they tracked closer and closer to Copeland's ship. Through some quick mental math, he determined that if he continued at his current course and speed, his ship would be blasted to Davy Jones' locker. All engines were ordered back full and the DE groaned to a stop, just as the shell splashes landed in what would have been the ship's position, had Copeland not given the order. This luck did not last. At 0851, three 8-inch shells from a heavy cruiser punctured a 3 eighths inch thick hull. Lights and communication were severed, and men were thrown like ragdolls. The third shell entered the forward fire room, killing all but two men inside the compartment. Other shells found their mark as well, destroying multiple 40mm Bofors and the two 5-inch deck guns. Gun 52 was destroyed when a shell cooked off inside the breach, killing everyone inside. With her weapons dead and her speed cut in half, the ship that would come to be known as the Destroyer Escort that fought like a battleship was dead in the water. And at 0910, Copeland gave the order to abandon ship. As men leapt into the shark-infested waters, 
the ship's mascot, Sammy, did the same. The following is, again, from Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors. The dog, too, swam to momentary safety. Somehow, Sammy got off the ship, and without the benefit of his custom-tailored canine flotation device, paddled out to a raft. He was there only a short time, however, when he decided that he belonged back on the Samuel B. Roberts, his home. The dog jumped off the raft and swam back toward the sinking ship. No one knew his fate for certain, but that was the last anyone saw of him. Sammy either drowned during the swim or went down with his ship. Nearly an hour later, her surviving crew watched as their beloved home away from home slipped below the waves. For the next 50 hours, her surviving crew struggled to remain afloat with limited food and water. Covered in oil, the men also became victims of sharks. On the morning of the 27th of October, 120 men of Samuel B. Roberts were rescued by various ships led by Lieutenant Commander James A. Baxter. In all, 1,150 survivors from four ships were plucked from the ocean by rescue ships. For his heroism, Lieutenant Commander Copeland was awarded the Navy Cross on the 16th of July, 1945. Following the war, a man from Tacoma, Washington, who had not been able to join the Naval Academy due to his mother's health, returned to his pre-war law career and remained in the Naval Reserve, rising to the rank of Rear Admiral before his death in his hometown on the 25th of August, 1973. His legacy lived on when the guided missile frigate USS Copeland, FFG-25, was commissioned on the 7th of August, 1982. On a hot August day leading up to the commissioning, Many of the surviving crew held a reunion. Stories were told, laughs were had, and tears were shed when Copeland's widow and daughter entered the San Pedro, California banquet hall. The men erupted in a standing ovation in honor of their skipper and saved their lives nearly four decades prior. Four American ships from Taffy 3 were lost that day. Here, I have only covered two, the Samuel B. Roberts and Johnston. I don't want to end this without commenting on the bravery of Hull and Gambier Bay. The heroism of both these ships and the rest of Taffy 3 is why more American lives weren't lost that day. The ferocity at which all of Taffy 3 fought convinced Kirita that they were facing the much larger capital ships which he had expected to encounter after exiting the San Bernardino Strait. Hull followed Johnson and Heerman in charging Curita's flotilla, and despite taking numerous shells prior to launching her first volley of torpedoes at one of the battleships steaming towards the escort carriers, she continued to maneuver and keep the attention away from the carriers. After even more shells found their mark, Hull successfully launched her final five torpedoes before going dead in the water with a 20-degree list. At 0840, the abandoned ship order was passed throughout the ship. Gambier Bay was the only carrier to be sunk in Taffy 3. Thanks to the bravery of her pilots and escorts, her fellow carrier was able to escape. 
After the center force was spotted and her screening ships charged in for torpedo runs, Gambier Bay launched all but two of her aircraft. These planes, just like the destroyers and destroyer escorts, repeatedly dove at Kirita's ships like a swarm of bees. Some carried only bombs or torpedoes, while others only had a few hundred rounds of machine gun ammunition to pepper the many guns and superstructures. Their persistence, even when out of ammunition, provided Gambier Bay and her fellow escort carriers valuable minutes to steam further away from the encroaching giants of center force. Numerous Japanese hits were recorded on the carrier, but it was not until 0820 that a larger caliber shell from a cruiser or one of the battleships ripped into her forward engine room. As fires and flooding consumed the ship, she capsized at 0907 and sank only four minutes later. Most of the remaining ships of Taffy 3 sustained damage and casualties, but were not sunk. By the end of the day, despite significant losses, Taffy 3 escaped the fight and in fact, forced Kirita's center force to retreat. Their tenacity in defending the invasion force of the Philippines proved to be one of the final pieces in the defeats of the once mighty Japanese Navy. I will end this episode of DE Classified with a quote from Red Harrington, the ship's bosun's mate first class, which at the reunion, he said, Those men on the Sammy B were my family, my home. They were closer to me than I can say. I now know men do not fight for a flag or a country or glory. They fight for one another. Any man in combat who lacks comrades who will die for him is not a man at all. He is truly damned. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org forward slash DE classified. I'm John Epp, and I hope you join us next month when we DE classify USS Bassett.